The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money here on News Talk 1493.9 FM. You're invited to join the program by calling 217-356-9397 or send a text on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line 217-351-5357. Opinions and views expressed in this program are those of the host and guests and not necessarily those of the station. And now, On the Money with your host, Paul Rudy. Well, good December Tuesday morning to everybody. I have uh, kind of a packed house today. We're going to... Welcome back, David Rudy, who works with me at Rudy Wealth Management after having your child, who's how old is Colin now? Just a little over six months old. Six months. Well, we're going to talk about parenthood here in a little bit. Of course, I have Dr. Fred Gertz, my regular guest on the show. Dr. Fred, good to see you. Yeah, good to be back. How was Texas? Fine. Warmer? Yeah, warmer. Not not warm, but warmer. About like today here. (laughs) That's good. And of course, I have Ryan Repco, Certified Financial Planner Professional. Good morning. Today. David's a certified, did I say you're certified financial? <laughs> I, I don't want you to feel gypped. <laughs> David is also a certified financial planner professional. So some people in the show have some knowledge today. Uh, you can call with your questions, 217-356-9397, or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line, 351-5357. You can also email your questions to talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, morning, guys. What an interesting year. Dave, your year's been full. Ryan, of course, you had your third not too long ago. Of course, I've already lost track. <laughs> May? I, ha- I have two. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to ask you how old your child is. That's a lot of pressure. O- October. October. October was you mine. Did. Yours was May. Yep, May. Yours was May. And, and you know, Fred, both of them were boys. Right. Okay, and you would think that if you you know you get a paycheck every month and you see a certain name that signed the front of that check, <laughs> you know, and you know you eh, <laughs> not, you know not a sniff, not there's no Paul Junior yet. You right. Know. See, first thing I did, my first son, I named Paul. Right. Well, I, well, it will complicate. Uh, it would complicate uh, Thanksgiving dinner if we had too many Pauls around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, th- three would be a little overwhelming. Sometimes at dinners, and I'm just there. I'm the only Paul people think there's too many Pauls around. <laughs> I was at Mike Hale's wedding. Uh, I guess that was, oh, a week and a half ago or so, Saturday. And the father of the bride thought I was a wedding crasher. <laughs> <laughs> he said, you act like you don't know anybody, but you act like you still know everybody. Right. I go, well, that's my trick. You mean Chris Hale's wedding? Oh, Chris, not Mike Hale's wedding. <laughs> Mike Hale was the, the father of the group. Maybe and you didn't know whose wedding you were at. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, someone has to always get the dancing going. You know, I'm famous for that. Well, Fred, these guys are not going to know anything I'm talking about because December 5th, 25 years ago, the maestro, Alan Greenspan, if I said the maestro to the guys, yeah. I'm not sure you guys would know that was Alan Greenspan. David shaking his head no. He gave a speech to the American Enterprise Institute in Washington and his legendary irrational exuberance speech. Remember, 25 years ago, and his two questions were, and basically, they were rhetorical twin questions where how do we know when irrational exuberance has unduly escalated asset values, which then become subject to unexpected and prolonged contractions as they have in Japan over the past decade? And how do we factor the assessment into monetary policy? Uh, notice that nowhere in the script did, they, did he provide the answers to that. Right. And I suspect it's because he didn't even know the answers to that. Right. It's even more complicated for investors. You could wait for the exuberance to end and you'll be waiting <laughs> well and that's the other thing you know if the if the chairman of uh the federal reserve doesn't know the answers to those questions what yeah. what chance do the rest of us have uh and and but coming from him at that time you know he's one of the most powerful people the federal i right. think i don't know would you agree fred that the chairman sure. of the federal reserve is a pretty powerful world figure and it was basically kind of uh, a financial thunderbolt, if you will, or some, right. some were calling it the shot, you know, heard across the world. But then, you, you know, this all gets back to 25 years later because the question we get guys all the time, and I'm sure you do too, Fred, right. is what's the stock market going to do next year or what's right. the economy going to do next year or interest rates? 
and it always I always like to draw on these big anniversaries of things as kind of like a master class and why it, those things are just a waste of time. But the maestro was right, but it just took yeah. 40 months for the, <laughs> the stock market to double right. from 750 uh, to over 1500. And uh, so it just shows you that really no one, no, not even the cent- Central Federal Reserve chairman can predict what's going to happen in the economy and stock markets ahead of time. Right. There's a, there's a uh, statement that Milton Friedman made. Milton Friedman was not uh, in favor of this kind of uh, fine-tuning of the economy through the Federal Reserve. And he said that he thought that uh, Alan Greenspan uh, did a really good job or he was really lucky, one of the two. And I think that Friedman thought he was more lucky than, than good. So it's like, is Warren Buffett uh, the world's smartest investor or has he been fortunate over his life? And again, you can come down on either side, but it's very difficult to fi- fine tune the economy. First sure. of all, you don't know where the economy is going in most cases. And secondly, you don't have all the controls to do the fine tuning. So it's a very, very challenging job. And some of the controls are just out of their, well, I won't say control, but that's kind of redundant. That is, some of them are like, political, fiscal right. policy, you know, laws that yeah. get passed in regulatory environments and things. That has an impact as well. And and the uh, uh, expectations are really high, and they've been up the last uh, few years now. So in addition to, to keeping prices stable and generating employment, the Federal Reserve now is supposed to deal with uh, global warming and is supposed to deal with uh, income inequality, which they clearly don't have the ability to, uh, to do. Well... Since that meeting, I thought this we might enjoy this. So at, this is through yesterday. Remember uh, the night of that, the afternoon of that day, the S and P five hundred I think closed around seven hundred and forty four or something like that. Well, as of yesterday's close, it was four thousand six hundred and sixty nine on the S and P five hundred index. So more than six times higher than it was then. So just kind of put this in perspective. You know, here was one of the most powerful financial people suggesting irrational exuberance. Mm -hmm. And these guys might not recall when he threw in the Japan uh, mention of Japan, the stock, the Nikkei average had fallen from 40,000 into the 19 or 18,000. So it had been on a big slide for six or seven years going into that. Well, if you were dumb enough to just invest that day, here you have almost uh, $100,000 if you had invested $10,000 on that day. And I think that's, you know, when you think, well, how could that happen? Well, when you look at the earnings on the S&P 500 back then in 1996, they were a little over $40. Most recently, the kind of the consensus is they'll be $200 this year. So that's up almost exactly five times. And then if you look at the cash dividend in 1996, um, it was around, I'm just going to round up a little bit. $15. Last time I looked, the consensus up, it's going to be $60 for this year, up almost exactly four times. So you had the stock market up uh, sixfold. You had uh, $10,000 invested up tenfold. You had earnings up fivefold. You had dividends up fourfold. Um, and yet the consumer price index since that time is up a mere 1.8-fold. Right. So it shows you that, once again, uh, maybe we'd all be better off turning off the TV, <laughs> logging out of your computer, and just enjoying the rest of your day right. as yeah. opposed to sitting around thinking about what the economy and stock market is going to do. Well, it's a very powerful idea, though. And, and in addition to uh, Greenspan, Robert Schiller is an economist who wrote a book with that title, and he won a Nobel Prize. And he's basically uh, – he's not a market timer, but he thinks there are fundamentals in the market that – could be, where the market could be overvalued or undervalued. I think most of the time he thinks it's overvalued. So, again, uh, he may be right, but uh, you don't know when to activate the uh, the uh, strategy because it could be now, it could be five years from now. Yeah, but, I mean, it, ahead, in our industry, a lot of times people will quote, you know, the current Schiller-Cape ratio, I think it's the Cape 10 ratio, um, as an excuse or a reason for saying, you know, the market's overvalued. Therefore, you should do this. You should get out of the market or reduce your stock allocation, something along those lines. And the problem is exactly like Dr. Gertz said and exactly what you mentioned when Alan Greenspan made his you know, call of irrational exuberance is, well, it, the market could get more expensive. It could get and it more, did. It doubled. It, it could get you know, even more, quote, overvalued. The CAPE ratio could continue to increase. So it's it's all comes down to... Even if we know that valuations are high, it's not helpful from a, a timing standpoint. 
So it's not, so there, you know, in other words, just because you read that, because you're going to hear, you know, we're going into the silly season again, where we're going to get all the experts' predictions of what 2022 is going to be. I'll let you guys give yours in a minute. Um, and so that was just my way of saying you might not want to pay all that much attention right. to them. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, the only thing we know is over one's lifetime, stocks have much higher expected returns than bonds. Right, uh, two still, to three times the return net of inflation. I, I think even. Uh, Someone like me who's very, very strong into the uh, uh, efficient market idea. I mean, I'm probably not going to buy uh, GameStop or, right. or, or uh, AMC, or I'm not going to go into Bitcoin. So e- even someone who's pretty uh, strict about that still has reservations about c- certain kinds of exuberance. I agree. And now, of course, there's a lot of exuberance about inflation. Yeah. Um, I've, I've read some fascinating articles over the last couple of weeks. Basically, there seems to be this consensus, or not a consensus, there's certainly a school of thought um, with a number of economists that basically it's inflation's baked in the cake. If you got an extra four or five trillion dollars of helicopter money, Milton Friedman always talked about. I think it was Milton Friedman that talked about. You know, you could literally drop money out of a helicopter and probably stimulate the economy. And essentially, I my view is we did that to the tune of maybe four or five trillion dollars. And I think, you know, so what they're saying is, look, if you increase money supply by 30%, you don't do anything else. You don't make any other changes. You probably have 25 or 30% of inflation. It's probably not all going to hit year one, but uh, I, I think it was uh, the stocks, bonds, bills, and inflation. Jeremy Siegel, I read an article. Where he said, yeah, it might play out like, you know, 7, 7, 7, and 6, and 7% inflation over five years. And he wasn't saying that's his forecast, he's saying, but that's, it's not all going to happen up front, obviously. But again, uh, a one-time kind of thing like that doesn't cause continuing inflation. It will cause our prices to increase. And if the Fed goes back to a more uh, restricted kind of policy, the inflation will come to an end eventually. And that's the, the real question. But right now, there's a, a kind of anomaly that uh, can't continue for a long time. Uh, there's something called the real interest rate, which is the rate of return over and above inflation. But now the real interest rate is decidedly negative. Right. If you talk about 6% inflation and whatever the interest rate is, 2 or 3%, it means you can— If you're lucky. I don't even know where you get that. Yeah, but you borrow money and, and you actually yeah. pay back uh, in, in lower-value dollars than you, than you uh, borrowed. So uh, that can't continue for a long time. So one of two things has to happen. Either the inflation rate has to come down or the interest rates have to go up. And that's the classic kind of battle that gets fought, and, and there's a lot of concern right now that the Federal Reserve has missed it and they've gotten behind the curve. Uh, Chairman Powell now is saying, well, it's not necessarily transitory anymore. He's striking that from his language and, you know, maybe more stubborn than it is. But um, I think everybody, I think there's pretty good consensus of what the cure for inflation is. Paul Volcker certainly uh, gave us some pretty strong medicine when he hiked interest rates almost to 20%, put us in a severe recession. But that was back in around 1980, Fred. We've had pretty much disinflation for about 40 years with a few blips. Right. Also, the uh, the Fed's had it surprisingly easy, though, the last, uh, what, 13, 14 years. Because usually you have to make a choice. If you're going to tighten money, you have to the, – the cost of that is very likely higher um, unemployment. And, and to rein things in, you have to have some pain. But there's been no pain in terms of the Fed's policy of expanding the money supply it hasn't caused inflation now for uh, certainly since uh, 2007 or 8 and probably going back to uh, 1980 or so. So, But now they're facing that, the age-old problem. There's going to be a cost in terms of uh, reining in inflation. Yeah, and it, it strikes me that if you have 1% interest rates, uh, if, if, GD, if our uh, debt to GDP is over 100%, okay, it costs you a trillion dollars right now roughly in interest – but you get a 5% interest rate, now it's 5% of your GDP is going towards interest right. payments, and that, that could be, well, the, the, that's a real dilemma. The thing you like an economist, though, uh, 6% inflation means you're uh, paying off 6% of your federal debt every, every year. Well, that, I guess that would be the point. Um, you know, that, that gap's going to be funded somehow. It's yeah. probably going to be funded through inflation, yeah. and that's what's going on. But it's real. I think everybody feels inflation. I see it. I, you know, I like to cook a lot and I always like to buy good beef. I don't buy like fancy pants beef. I go to Costco or Sam's. I think you get really good beef. Christmas time and holidays, I go to Old Time Deli and I will pay up because they really have the best. Um, but, you know, it's it's staggering 
how much certain things prices have gone up. A lot of the things that I like to cook have really gotten expensive. Now that's specific to me, but but uh, you know, when I made my famous, you know, well, I don't think they're famous. Not with you guys, are they? My meat pies this weekend, and I actually did something I haven't done before. I ground all my own meat. I ground seven pounds of chuck roast and three pounds of pork, but. Just the prices this year for my meat pies versus last year. I don't think I'm going to share any with my kids this year. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be the Grinch. Yeah. Well, I, I, I talked about it earlier, but the, the real official uh, evidence of inflation is that uh, Dollar Tree now is a dollar twenty-five. <laughs> so when you go in and buy your candy or your plastic uh, dishes or whatever, it costs a dollar twenty-five rather than a dollar. Yeah. Don't, don't you think fears of inflation are causing people to make some goofy investment decisions? Well, of I mean, course, they always do. <laughs> And Fred, isn't the big deal? It's really not the inflation itself. Doesn't doesn't it become the real problem manifests itself when people begin to expect it? It's like, right. oh, it's built in now. This isn't a one time thing. And then they will make, like you said, then they start making different decisions. It's great to be a borrower, you know, because you're paying back in depreciated yeah. dollars. But people, I mean, think of that people right now how they've gotten crushed over the last really well for a long time, but specifically you take the last twelve months or so. Maybe if you're lucky, you earned one percent in your CD, but inflation yeah. costs you six or seven percent. You literally, if you had a hundred thousand dollars in a CD, the purchasing power is now maybe ninety-four, ninety-five thousand right. dollars. That's a problem. Yeah. It also creates kind of uh, not not just irrationality in ter- terms of uh, investment, but in terms of of uh, economic ideas. Now all of a sudden, uh, uh, all companies are really mean and they're gouging, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> the raising consumer, the price yeah. of, of gasoline or gas or whatever it might be. And, and the obvious thing is, if they're so mean and so uh, avarice, why didn't they do it earlier? It uh, so, so again, it's basically, it's the, uh, the forces in the economy are allowing them to do it. It's not because they're, they're greedy. They're always greedy. All right. We're going to take a call from Miss Zoe. How are you today? Hey. <laughs> you even call me Miss Zoe like they do on the internet. I think that's really cute. I like it. <laughs> anyway, um, my, uh, my favorite way to have my name. Anyway, um, my question is probably silly, and I kind of think I know what you're going to say, but someone, asked, someone brought it up to me about how it took the Japanese stock market 30 years to come back. Um, what do you say to people like that? I mean, when they compare it to ours and they say, well, what if ours did the same thing? Yeah, good question, uh, and I've heard that. You hear it less lately, but for a couple of decades um, that was certainly the concern of saying, well, wait a minute, you guys keep saying the stock market's in this permanent uptrend. And I don't think I'm wrong. I think the Nikkei index or whatever, the 225, I still think it's lower than it was in 1989. Right. Now, on a total return basis, dividends reinvested, you're probably back on high watermark some time ago. Uh, but Fred, um, why couldn't that happen here? Or maybe it could. But what was going on in Japan towards the late 80s where it might be arguable that they were truly in a, a, a well, irrational exuberance right. on steroids. Well, again, uh, looking back, it's easy to say there was a bubble there, but the, the real question that uh, Gene Fama, who's a dimensional guy, it says uh, you only know the bubble after the bubble's over. But, but again, it's, it's a real problem. I don't have an answer to it except that they were uh, having expectations that simply weren't, weren't realizable. And it's a very... Difficult thing because uh, I, we always talk about index funds, which are largely uh, cap weighted. So if you're cap weighted in an international index in the 1980s, you were uh, in de facto betting on Japan. Yes, which, uh, and I don't know what you do in that case. Uh, yeah, you know, well, of course, if you're, you should be rebalancing. So Japan shouldn't, you know, that. Yeah. So even if if Japan back then, and it was part of our portfolio. Um, you know, you're going to do any rebalancing. But what was going on there, Zoe, is I recall, I mean, I remember reading articles about Japanese real estate being like $100 per square inch. Yeah. And it was really bizarre. I mean, th- to me, I could go back after the fact, easily say that was a bizarre bubble and no surprise at all that, you know, they got their day of reckoning. I don't see any resemblance. I don't know about you guys, but if I, if I look at our stock market, for example, and I use a capitalized earnings, you know, I would say it, it, at worst, the current stock market is probably fairly valued. But using even a reasonably low 10-year treasury, it's, it's probably undervalued somewhat. Um, I don't think that could ever be said in the late 80s for the Japanese market. But it is a reminder, Miss Zoe, that 
There's a reason the expected returns for stocks are higher than treasury bills. There is risk involved. Mm -hmm. And one of the risks are, even though I'm an eternal incurable optimist, um, there's no guarantee whatsoever that 30 years from now that the S&P 500 would be higher than it is today. That is just one of the fundamental risks. If that wasn't a risk, you couldn't expect the higher returns. But it's a great question. Um, it does pop up, you know, from time to time, even today. But I don't think there's any comparisons between the Japanese economy and stock market and asset valuations of the late 80s yeah. in our current asset valuations. And the so. other thing, I mean, it's all the more, it's just a reminder why you don't put all of your money in one basket. And when I say one basket, I mean one country, you know, even if it is the United States. And I don't think it's likely that we're going to have a 30-year period with zero return just historically that the odds of that happening are extremely low. Um, but it, it could happen, or maybe it's not that bad, but we still have a 30-year period where U.S. stock market returns are well well below average. Yeah. Uh, that's why you include some international diversification in yeah. your investment portfolio. Think about Japanese investors. Had they had half of their uh, investment portfolio outside of Japan, just, just yeah. a simple S&P 500 index fund in the United States, they averted disaster. Right. But again, uh, this is a mini version of that, but uh, my experience was uh, treading water for the first 10 years, uh, starting in late 60s or 1970, uh, stocks went nowhere. So uh, it took me 10 or 12 years to actually have the game right. uh, Infl start to work. Inflation for many years, uh, I forget which time period, but for 10 or 12 years, uh, the S&P 500 basically was up maybe one, one and a half percent, and inflation was six, six, seven percent per year. Yeah. Um, th that's, those are really poor conditions. Right, but if I had been, you know, gotten the game late and so I was 55 in 1970 right. and invested, I would have been same place. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it'd be tough sliding, and, yeah. you know, and, and that's when we talk about retiring, uh, there's a lot of randomness about when you retire. Um, it can make a matter of one quarter, retiring one quarter different than the next in a particular year can have completely different outcomes for the same retirees. Um, so Zoe's question was a good one. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you. I, I have uh, one but more. I think I think maybe the most important point brought up is that's why you diversify, and, and you don't want all your money in one country, not even your own. The other thing that I would mention is there are very few people who plop a lump sum of money into the stock market, a hundred percent stock, at one moment in time, and never invest additional money. Um, so if you think of someone who's still working, yeah, they probably had a portion of their money that was invested right at at that peak if it was a Japanese investor just right. investing in the Japanese stock market. But if you're still working, you would be buying all along the decline and then buying you know, as it recovers. And over that 30-year period, someone who was working in dollar cost averaging into the market probably had a reasonably decent investment experience without running the numbers. I would suspect that would be the case. And then for retirees, there's very few retirees that even should be 100% allocated to stocks. So at least if you had that really bad scenario with a major market decline and then, you know, some maybe an extended period of subpar stock returns, you know, you have a portion of your money in bonds and you're probably rebalancing back into the stock portion at, at those low prices at some point. That should help the investment outcomes. And then as you mentioned, the last thing is it's just it just goes to show how important it is to have a process for making adjustments. Uh, to your financial plan along the way because you're not guaranteed those average returns. Right. You have to anticipate you could be in for some really poor conditions. And as long as you can in, not predict but anticipate, and as long as you have a process that says, I call retirement a big if this, then that. Okay. If we have great returns, then we're going to do this. If we have average returns over the next year or two, then we're going to do If we have poor returns, we're going to do that. And I think that's what do-it-yourselfers generally miss that they don't have is that if so when i i want to write an article because so often i read articles about oh you it's easy any retiree can do it themselves and my point is most people don't know what it is and to me my it is ittt if this then that and that's what drives retirement more than anything right i think you, you guys are laughing I, I think you got to trademark that before someone else takes I it from you financial <laughs> fit f-i-t-t -T. The, the, the world also is changing i mean if you look at uh, I've been around now a long time on the show here, but if you look back 
uh, a decade or two ago, I, I think most of what we talked about was investing. And now uh, a lot of what you talk about is not investing, but how you phase that into a retirement. The same thing is true with uh, financial institutions, uh, TIA, CREF, now, and Fidelity, and um, talk a lot about not how do you invest, but how do you use your investment to maintain a, a reasonable retirement. Right. It's really going into retirement. It's all about am I going to have enough money to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want. Um, and, and that really comes down to just an income plan. Uh, do I have an income plan? Yeah, that's what I'm seeing more and more in like 401k plans. Is they're they're bridging that like gap where it's like, well, I have this giant bucket of money, whether it's two hundred thousand or two million dollars. This is my total sum of savings, and generally, most people look at that number and say, okay, well, what does that mean for me when I actually need that money? How much can I spend? And now a lot of these um, plan providers are doing that extra step and saying with certain assumptions that you know, you'd know you have to accept, of course, this is how much income you could drive month after month for maybe a 30-year time period in, in retirement, which is now so much more meaningful because then it gives people the ability to say, okay, yes, I, I think I can live on that or no, which if the answer is no, I don't think I can live on this estimated projection of income based on my savings. It gives me the ability to now potentially step up my savings when I have the opportunity to do so and maybe have extra years of of prolonged earnings and, and accrued, um, uh, just like, what am I saying? Dividend, dividends re- right. reinvesting. Reinvestment, yep. Yeah, dividends reinvesting and allowing for just a lot of extra growth that maybe you wouldn't have had had you not known that income you've been able to derive. Yeah, so it's key to know if, you know, if you're the 30, 40, or 50-year-old thinking about retiring sometime in your 60s or whatever, is really to think about it as an income target and kind of work backwards. So if I need a certain income, Okay, well, I can project Social Security because I'll do that for you. Uh, suppose that's all I have. And then, okay, well, I need another 3000 a month after that. You know, what do I have to do to that? I would say, you know, divide the, the, the three by 0.04 or so. The, it's not necessarily a 4% rule, but it's a reasonable guideline for how much you can, can do and go from there. And that really begins to give you a target. Um, and now one of the things that uh, a lot of retirement plans are doing as well I'm thinking of 401ks, things like that, uh, is they'll basically convert it to an annuity. So a lot of times what the participants are looking at is if you annuitize that stream and bought an immediate annuity, a lifetime annuity, this is what it would be. I was thinking about this the other day, guys. Um, I'm bombarded by articles by, I don't know, people kind of virtue signaling in our industry that if you don't promote guaranteed income, type of investments, things like immediate annuities, lifetime annuities, deferred annuities, et cetera, that maybe you're not living up to your fiduciary duty. Um, But I've never been a big fan of those. And I think, first of all, generally speaking, they're fixed income. I mean, whatever that income payment is, that's it for the next 30 years or as long as you live. And so we know that with just even modest historical inflation, you're going to grind down your purchasing power. Okay, well, you know that ahead of time. It's when you get these extraordinary bouts of inflation like we've had over the last year and a half or so. I keep thinking, okay, if I had my money, I've already lost 6 or 7% of my purchasing power in one year. Um, that's a real problem. Mm-hmm. And I know, I like, from what I've read, the inflation-adjusted annuities are not priced as favorably. They're not. Okay, so they're, they're really expensive. I that would expensive. be resolved eventually. That's weird. It will. That. I think it will, Dave. I think as uh, capital market assumptions get better... Uh, as com- as insurance companies learn to uh, charge less for certain products, I think you're going to see more efficient. And what Dave's talking about is today you can go out and buy an annuity, you trade a lump sum of money for a guaranteed income stream that has some type of inflation adjustment. I don't know of any that will give you actual inflation, wherever it is. Typically what you see is a maximum of a 3% increase. So if inflation's 3%, uh, we'll give you 3%. If it's 4%, we're going to give you 3%. Um, and so, so we're seeing more of that. But at least anything, I think what you brought up, Ryan, makes sense. I think we're, there's more emphasis on for 401k plans and retirement plans like that of saying, hey, are, are we getting to where we want to be? Before we had those measures, all we looked down and we say, hey, I'm 32 years old and I have $128,000 in my 401k. Is that good or bad? And it needs to be pointed at something so that you know, so that there's a way to make the adjustments of increasing how much you're, you need to invest or decreasing it potentially or changing your allocations. 
I think one one of uh, the problems with annuities now is not so much that they're unfairly priced, but the interest rates are so low that they're extremely expensive. So if you give people a choice, like if, if you and your fiduciary capacity say, look, I can guarantee you a certain amount of income in the future through an annuity, you tell them how much it costs, a lot of people are going to say, well, I, that's too expensive. I'll take my chances. So my, my idea, which has never come to fruition, is that uh, uh, people should think about uh, deferred annuities, uh, You know, ex- maybe spend it 4.5% and then buy an annuity that will uh, come into play at 80 or something of that sort. But those aren't really... Uh, I've looked uh, at them, Fred. Uh, to me, they're still expensive. Yeah. And when I run them against very conservative balanced portfolio expectations, um, I know why insurance companies are generally the largest buildings yeah. in the city. Uh, they've got that. They've had, they have those numbers figured out. It doesn't make them bad. It just makes them good at running the numbers and, yeah. and, and, and good business people. Um, so I, I haven't implemented those. I like the concept, and I think at some point, I think, I think you're going to see massive improvements in home equity um, uh, financing. Uh, reverse mortgage is what I'm thinking of. I think you're going to see dramatic improvement in deferred annuity. So you say, oh, at 80, I can trade a certain amount of money today as I'm 60 for $1,500 a month when I turn 80. Um, I think you're going to see improvements in all of these areas. And I think they will, I think reverse uh, mortgages are going to be, and probably are, and probably should be used more than they are today. I think that's just going to increase. So there's going to be some really good in financial engineering. There's also some psychological barriers. I mean, the the, the the deferred annuity, uh, some will say, well, uh, what if I die before 80 yeah, and, yeah. and you lose that money? But the point is you, you got the protection. And, and, and so you have to get, get over the idea that you may not get all your money back. And even with immediate annuities, the concern that people have is, well, I hate the idea that, you know, when I die, the money's just gone. If I have my money invested in an investment portfolio yeah. and take a conservative withdrawal, there's probably something left over at the end of my life. And so, I mean, obviously well, they there, do are, have, there are ways to deal with that. But, but, there they, are annuities yeah. with riders and things. But right. that's the initial the, like, gut reaction sure. that people have. They also the, hate the idea of running out of money when they, right. <laughs> yeah. when they, if they live uh, to 100 years old. Well, these are all exactly. trade-offs, um, and, and that's what we try to do. You know, we'll show clients like, okay, scenario one is most or a significant part of your money and guaranteed product income. Oh, sorry. Um, I meant to turn my phone off. Um, guaranteed products, uh, but you put it when you put them side by side, even with the trade-offs and risk, and you're never eliminating risk, you're yeah. just transforming them. You're accepting a different type of risk. I can tell people this. Um, after studying this stuff for almost four decades and spending thousands of hours on historical data and try to hone expectations, and not just historical data, but even simulated data that shows that we could have 20, 30-year retirements um, that have much worse returns than we have today. Even under those, even when I, you know, pretty brutal about it, I'm probably going to be 80% equity, 20% fixed income producing investments, and I'm not going to have any guarantee, at least as it stands today, unless there's improvements. I'm not doing it. And that's, so I'm, I'm speaking from the heart for myself. So if, so if people, you know, are wondering why we don't, or I don't recommend guarantee, sometimes I do, but it's rare. Um, that's because I've I've studied the data too well. I rather, I rather, you know, for me the trade off is more favorable to to have a balanced portfolio yeah. and withdraw from that. Well, and don't you think the trap people fall into is making it an all or nothing decision when it's it's absolutely not. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think when you look at the academics, they're generally not saying people should, you know, exclusively use use uh, an immediate annuity or a deferred annuity to generate their retirement income. They're saying, hey, you should probably p- at least partially annuitize your assets to give you essentially a floor of income, and then you can invest the remainder. I think that's kind of the approach that more the academics tend to take is more of a a partial annuitization. Yeah, but then the other criticism I have on some of the studies that I've written, some of the people that have even worked for the certified financial planner, you know, college of certified, whatever it is, college of sciences, Norm (laughs) MacDonald said. is when they compare the guaranteed income streams, they'll compare it against unrealistic returns for the stock market, poor unrealistic returns. Uh, the, the, some of what I've seen is they'll compare these guaranteed income streams against the lowest 10th percentile of returns, but it's really worse than that because their expected returns that they're using are, are it, it's as if three out of four or 80% of the return expectations are worse than we've ever had. Well. 
of course, a guaranteed income product is going to look favorable when it comes to that. Everybody said another. I mean, change the subject slightly, yeah, go ahead. but please but, do. Uh, <laughs> That's what Ryan's but, over there going. Please change the subject. But the uh, idea of expected interest rates, uh, my my uh, idea of insurance is insurance gives you some solid kind of protection. But my recent experience is that insurance has been kind of a a, a trail of tears. Um, I, first of all, my uh, 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 long term care has basically doubled in price when you thought when you buy insurance it didn't and. I purchased, my wife and I purchased uh, some, uh, what we thought were sort of like whole life programs, but they were based on a, uh, interest rate assumptions that weren't met. So these now are, are coming due either with uh, higher premiums or uh, all, all kinds of options. So even that was, uh, we thought would give us uh, security, but didn't give as much as we, we really uh, expected. Okay, I got a question for you guys. Um, it says, I don't need any certain income. I'm just going to live on what I have. That said, I'm 60, have about eight years left to work, home's paid off, and credit card debt almost paid off. Is there still time to invest? 403B question mark, stocks. So I think they're saying, is there still time to invest? And if I was going to invest, does that include investing in the great companies of America and the world? Yeah. I think for this person, if the question is, they're it sounds like their their spending is allowed to be very flexible. They're not demanding too much out of their money. Um, anybody who's still working and has excess cash, I'd say it's it's probably a good investment to invest it rather than put it in your checking and savings account if you don't need it and you have a assumed, of course, like a emergency fund to get you out of a, a short-term bind um, because she's got potentially six, no, eight more years of of working timeline. And what a difference eight years can be. And if you're buying in a monthly amount in like a, a 401k, for example, you're you're not placing big bets. You're just taking small amounts and contributing each month, you know, month after month for eight years. Um, we just it doesn't take much to look backwards eight years from now and look at what was stock prices then. Doesn't mean that's what it'll be in the future, but you know, you you just say, well, I'm a buyer of of the companies of America and the world, and my goal is to hopefully you know accrue enough for it. It gives me some sort of additional income in retirement, and if I don't need it, it's only extra you know padding to the upside. I agree. And in fact, uh, the best thing that could happen mm-hmm. for this person that texts in is those eight years are just absolutely miserable for <laughs> the stock market, If they're to the extent they're going to invest some of their money in the stock market. If I'm dollar cost averaging, you know, even with the eight-year accumulation timeline, uh, I'm going to plow deep into equities, especially the poorer the returns are, the more I'm going to increase my savings and increase my allocation to equities. I'm going to, t- the best, and most people don't think of it that way. They think of, oh, wow, for those next years, if right. the stock market's horrible, it's going to push my retirement back further or make it worse. And I'm thinking, no, it pulls it closer and makes it better. For sure. And I mean, then I think the trap that people fall into is, you know, in this scenario, they'd be focusing on the eight years, but then you have to remember, even after retirement, you should probably have some of your money invested and probably a portion of that money invested in the stock market because you've got another, you know, if you retire at 68, you know, maybe another 20 plus years in retirement to fund your lifestyle, potentially from, you know, withdrawing from your investment portfolio, making up a portion of your income. So I, I think the the short answer is absolutely yes, you, you should consider investing and it sounds like they might be a university employee when they mention the 403B. So that's a that's a great option. Do you guys think, uh, in general, people overestimate or have a or have an irrational fear of the stock market, investing in the great companies of America and the world? Just in a general, you know, you know, blanket statement. I do. I think I think most people almost view it like um, it's a gamble. It's a casino. It's it's you know this complex game that's rigged for the wealthy. Um, and I think it keeps a, a lot of people on the sidelines and it's what prevents a lot of people from accumulating wealth. The, the, the clients that I have looked at um, just being on my side of the table and saying, wow, how, how have some of you acquired the amount of wealth that you have? Whether you define wealth and you know, hundreds of thousands or millions doesn't matter. It's the folks that just consciously saved. And for the folks that saved for long periods of time, they're the ones that have have the most comfortable retirement. So, so for somebody just simply being able to to just diligently put their head down and save, it's it's all the difference between comfortable and and maybe tough times in retirement. 
I think it's a great point. You mentioned people viewing it as a casino, and I know that's one of the reasons, Dad, why you, instead of saying the stock market or stocks, will often say ownership in the great companies of America and the world. And I always think, you know, it sounds a little bit hokey, but I understand the reason for that is because it, it gets people to focus on what the stock market is. It's not this big casino. You're literally buying ownership in companies that are out there selling products and services and generating revenues and hopefully increasing those revenues over time. And I think when people can refocus on that, like, oh, yeah, I'm buying shares of these. And you can think of, you know, the most successful companies in the world that most of your money is going to if you're just buying, you know, a market cap weighted index fund. Sometimes that can help people get over the the fear and the thought of, you know, I, I have to predict the future to be a successful investor. It's no, I'm just buying a share in the company, you know, a, a share in these companies. And then, you know, as their profits increase over time, I'm getting a share of those profits. And you guys hear all the time, oh, stocks are riskier than bonds. I mean, I, I, that's, you make a point. I, I, there's certain things I won't say. I'll generally not ever call it the stock market, as you say to a client, because I think it does conjure up, you know, concept of it's a rigged game and all that. And so one of the things I like to do is just go back. I'm 62, go back to 1959 and see what the stock market was. The index that represent the great companies of America, the 500 largest. And today it's 75 times higher. The income stream from dividends is over 30 times higher and inflation is up. Cost of living is up of six or seven fold. Uh, so when a 65-year-old client or potential client comes in and says, well, I, I'm conservative, I want to invest for retirement, and I don't want stocks because they're risky, I always have to think to myself, well, I don't know where you got that idea because you haven't lived it. That hasn't been the story of your lifetime. But none of us have been taught to focus that it is a lifetime agenda that given ones, and it's never a lock. It's, you, you know, Fred mentioned a period a brutal period for stock market investors, uh, 1966 or 65 through, call it 1982, you had 16, 17 years where basically the Dow went from 1,000 to 1,000. For accumulators, that was a home run. It, was, it made them filthy rich in retirement, you know, if they were retiring in the early 80s. But for the person that retired in 1966, it made it a tough retirement, at least for the first 17 years where your cost of living in that first half of your retirement doubled. That's inflation Th that really circles back to this inflation thing guys is people when they focus on this four percent rule for how much can i spend of my corpus you know starting out they're everybody's you know kind of rejiggering it saying well it's not really the four percent rule it's the 3.3 percent rule because returns might not be as good the original person that did the study said wait a minute we need to focus more on inflation that's really more problematic is uh, the higher than average rates of inflation in retirement is more problematic than poor stock market returns. Right. I, I think we have kind of a, a bipolar distribution here, though. I suspect that you have some people that come in and say, uh, I, I, let's go into the stock market and give me 20% returns. Yeah. And uh, so there are a number of people uh, who, in that way, I mean, there's a, a famous case of Lenny Dykstra, the uh, Phillies. Uh, baseball player who ended up in prison. Yeah. But what a th character. Who, who thought he could, uh, you know, uh, he's optimistic as a baseball player, optimistic as an investor, and thought he could generate 20 or 30% returns. It doesn't happen usually. So and, one of my earliest clients, this goes back to the 80s, some point in the 80s, and he tells the story. Uh, I don't normally tell it, but he, he always reminds people why he came to me. Yeah. And here I was probably as young as you guys are younger, he came to me and he said, well, I said, what are your expect expectations for a return? He goes, well, I've been getting 12% a year for myself. I would expect you then to be able to do better than that. I guess I would expect you to earn me 15%. I said, oh, I tell you what, you got the, you're looking at the wrong guy. And it's, I, I just said, and if you can find that person that can really consistently deliver that, let me know because I got a lot of clients I'll send to them. I said, but that person doesn't exist. Well, Ber Bernie Madoff did for Great. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, I mean, that is a good point. I would say it's the, it's less common, but you do have, especially in times like this when the market has been doing really well for an extended period, and I think things got better so quickly from March of 2020 that people have almost forgot, forgotten about it at this point. And you do hear people now, I think they're forgetting 
some of the the true risks of stock investing or not risk, but just how ugly things can get and how how long you can go with an extended period of uh, subpar investment returns. What are you guys doing about that from an expectation standpoint when you're discussing with clients? Is that something you discuss a lot more frequently now than you did maybe? Two years ago, yeah, certainly. I'm, I'm, I don't know. Maybe ad nauseum. We're getting to the point where it's like, hey, just a reminder: things have been very rosy. Things have been very comfortable. We've seen very little volatility. It's almost all upward momentum the past year and a half. Let's remind ourselves what what normal expectations are. And I'm actually running people through like, what would the plan look like if the the stock market dropped 20, 30 percent, which is a perfectly normal expectation to happen, maybe once every five years. And I show them this is real. This is what we've observed in the past. We don't know what will happen in the future, but it's a good, you know, barometer of what could could happen. So every time you meet with a client and update their plan, at that same time you're going through each time and showing them. Now look, um, your spending today is five thousand a month, but if the stock market falls, you just throw what different levels of how much the stock if the stock market because that's basically where the damage gets done temporarily is in a stock market decline for people that are in balanced portfolios and and so by the time they walk out that day they realize that wow if the stock market falls 22 percent that means instead of spending five thousand a month i'm only going to be able to spend forty seven hundred dollars a month because that's what ryan or dave told me so that that in itself is essentially a lifeboat drill that's saying look you know we can't we can anticipate a problem. We can't predict it, but let's digest it and look at it ahead of time before it happens. Because if you hit the iceberg, it's too late. So you have to do it ahead of time, which is the reason they do lifeboat drills, <laughs> right? Can't wait till you hit. <laughs> can't do a lifeboat drill. And I think we guys, I think all of us spend probably half of our time just trying to hone in those expectations every time we meet with the client, so that they walk out with realistic expectations. Yeah. And, and averages don't always work out in the short run. Uh, I was really shocked, but uh, there, there are some pension funds now that are having an arbitrage play on the uh, on the uh, equity premium, where they're, they're saying we're going to borrow a lot of money and then invest that into the equity markets, and we'll end up with a three or four four percent excess return, which may be true yeah. over fifty years. For this, right. not, not necessarily true in the next. There's nothing average about stock market returns. Uh, rarely do we see. Well, so the average you know, compounded return for the broad U.S. market, call it 10%. Well, it's so rare that you get within 2% of 10% that it's it's rarely average. I'm going to go through a couple of quick texts. One's for you, Fred. Well, at least I say so. <laughs> at what point does the national debt become a major issue? Question mark. Interest rates uh, are going to need to rise to battle inflation. Major chunk of budget to just service the debt. We hear this a lot, yeah. right? Well, I think the, the answer... I that, ask you that all the yeah, time. Yeah, and I, I answer it in kind of a hedging way, saying that it's really an important long-term problem, but right now it's not uh, necessarily uh, uh, making us uh, change our, our ways. But the point is, if you every day you say uh, it's a long-term problem, but the long-term isn't here yet, you, you sometimes don't prepare for the long term. So the, the problem that we face politically is that no one wants to bite the bullet to deal with these long-term issues. So again, I, I agree there's a, a serious problem, but it doesn't have to be uh, dealt may, with in, a, in one uh, you know quick uh, response. It, it, yours and my age, we, we may never see that damage that's done. Right. Uh, we may see inklings of it, but not what I think a lot of people fear of chaos and well, yeah, they're, and, they're two different ways. Defaulting and things like that. It can, it can cause dysfunction in the economy in terms of lower uh, rates of growth, things of that sort. It can also cause uh, catastrophic kind of things like you know, Argentina. Right. But, but uh, again, we don't expect those, but again, they're never, you can never rule them out. Uh, I'm just curious to see what you guys think about Bitcoin. Well, imagine that. El Salvador is the only country in America, in Central America that has it. The president keeps buying more coins. Any thoughts? Is this a good investment? Please advise. So let's just talk about it generically. Uh, you guys are probably getting asked that. We have a few minutes left. Have any brief thoughts on that? I can give my short answer since we only have a few minutes, is that I don't view it as an investment at all because it really doesn't have a long-term expected return. When you buy a Bitcoin, a year later, you're still going to have a Bitcoin. The only thing that's going to Chain, have changed is the price someone's willing to pay for it. And that's just extremely unpredictable. Um, so it's not like a, a buying a stock where you're you know, buying a portion of a company that's generating revenues. It's literally, it, it's just like if you were buying any other currency. And or, it's just ex- extremely, extremely volatile. And 
my answer for clients that have asked about it or, you know, should I invest it is I just would say just don't invest any money in it that you can't afford to lose or at least see decline, you know, like 80 percent. Well, it's gone down 28 percent just in the last couple of weeks. So it is incredibly volatile. I think uh, my my spin on it is going to be, look, when they come out with a cash index, like a Bitcoin exchange traded fund that's not traded in the futures markets, because those things are just mm-hmm. all over the place, an actual replica in in exchange traded mutual fund form i think that we'll probably adopt it for a small amount as a diversifier Um, two reasons you add something that you might not have before they either have high returns and sufficiently high enough to increase the expected return on my portfolio i don't think that's bitcoin i don't know i don't think they have an expected return but you can also consider assets that behave a lot it's materially differently than everything else in your portfolio, and certainly Bitcoin will probably be a very good diversifier. And but once, but I think there needs to be a cash index. Is there's movement in that way? There's a firm in New York that's creating an index. I'm not sure how it works or if it's widely available yet, but it's inevitable. I think in the next 12 months there'll be a cash, you know, an exchange traded fund for Bitcoin. So you, you'd be talking about like maybe a percent of the portfolio. I'm talking or about something like uh, three a to five percent, a very as, small as amount, three to five percent, just for a diversifier. Well, this is going to be the the new gold question. Should, should oh, I invest, sure. Should yeah. I invest in gold? You could give them pretty much the same answer. I exactly. Think. Yeah, and, and, you know, in all these years, my 38 years, the answer on gold has always been no, um, for all the reasons Dave basically said. And I don't even find it a particularly good diversifier. Uh, I don't think it will be as good of a diversifier. Bitcoin is a, is a bizarre, has bizarre behavior and bizarre volatility. That may sound like something you don't want, but if it's doing it in a way that's so different than the rest of your portfolio, it can actually improve your portfolio. So I think that's all the... I think at the very least, it's probably not a great idea to invest a large portion of your net worth in Bitcoin. Of course not. Obviously, that has panned out extremely well for people who have done that in the past, but going forward is the question. All right. Well, I think we're supposed to be back on uh, December 28th. I think we're still going to have a show unless we change our minds, and uh, we'll see everybody back in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On The Money. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On The Money here on DWS, paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. You can join Paul on the second and fourth Tuesdays of each month here on News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM. The views expressed in this program were those of the host and the guests and not necessarily those of the station. You're listening to News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM WDWS Champaign-Urbana, a Champaign multimedia group station.